Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and this morning I'm joined by my co-host, Aaron Brake. How are you doing this morning, Aaron? Doing well, how are you? I'm well, thank you. We are advocates and voices for the unborn with Life Training Institute, whose mission is to equip pro-life advocates to graciously and persuasively defend their pro-life views in the marketplace of ideas and in our culture. We believe in the radical idea that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, whether born or unborn, and we're here to equip you to defend that idea in a culture that celebrates a woman's right to choose. Now, today we have a very special guest joining us, our friend and colleague in Life Training Institute, Jay Watts. Jay Watts is a speaker and writer for LTI. He served as development coordinator at Cobb Pregnancy Services for three years, experiencing firsthand the powerful impact pregnancy centers have on their communities. He started contributing to the LTI blog in 2007 and joined his full-time staff in 2010. Jay speaks to churches, youth groups, school assemblies, and other organizations throughout the United States on topics including the case for life and understanding the Christian worldview. He has trained groups at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, Harvard University, University of Illinois, Auckland University in New Zealand, and many other universities, participated in multiple apologetics conferences, and been interviewed on radio and television on the issue of the value of human life. Jay is also a contributing researcher to Summit Ministries' Understanding the Times curriculum. He is an associate member of the Evangelical Theological Society and the Evangelical Philosophical Society. Jay is a native of Marietta, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta, and resides there with his wife and three children. Jay, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for letting me join in today. We're happy to have you here. Now, the topic for discussion that we have this morning is arguments for infanticide. We wanted to start off by discussing a brief video that Students for Life of America recorded, in which a college student was interacting with one of their members and was basically giving a defense for infanticide. The video is about 55 seconds long. So first, I'll go ahead and play the audio for the video, and then we'll discuss it afterward. And then uh, after we discuss the video, we'll, we'll discuss some of the other arguments that we sometimes hear for infanticide. So here's the audio for the video. 
And I gave you the example of the last student we talked to who said it was okay up until two, and you. I'll buy that. You think that's the reasonable fact of the matter up until is, two? If without communication, we have no way of knowing if you're sentient or not. I mean, it's no different than this tree. It's alive, but is it sentient? I don't know. I cannot communicate to it. Yeah, I mean, to compare with a two-year-old is kind of tough. I mean, just be, well, being the tree two-year-old analogy. Can the two-year-old talk to me? Can the two-year-old talk to me? In some instances, I'm fairly certain that is. But generally speaking, the child is still have the inability to communicate. And until we determine as such at what point does sentience become an issue, we can't really debate on whether or not that is the situation or not. So, as you can see, the guy in the video isn't exactly a Peter Singer or Michael Tooley. One thing that I noticed, pretty much right off the bat, is it's difficult to know what he's arguing from such a short video clip divorced from the context of the overall conversation. He mentions sentience, but I have no idea how he's actually using the term. Sentience means the capacity to feel, especially as regards feeling pain, but many people tend to use the term incorrectly to mean something more like consciousness and self-awareness. Yeah, that's what I see too. It, the, and it would have been, they would have been well served asking for definitions first. I mean, it's always best when you get into this kind of discussion to push for clear definitions of what these people mean. But I, I've noticed just last week I was speaking at a school and a young man said to me, well, I believe similar, I believe sentience gives value. And then it was clear upon a few more questions that what he meant was something more like conscious awareness and uh, not the ability to feel pain or the ability right. to have a sensory experience. So, yeah, I agree. I, I think that he probably has the foggiest clue what he's talking about. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but he, he's putting forth an argument, at least, so you interact with it. I, th I think that it, it, yeah. you know, on, on evaluation of that first, I think you can evaluate, we should evaluate it on two. One, the merits of his arguments, which are particularly great, but let's give him the best versions of the arguments he's trying to represent. And then the yeah. other thing would be, the with no, with no insult meant to the person, a better way to talk to somebody like that uh, based on how the person was progressing through that conversation. Because I believe that there were failures on both sides, and I think if you give them both the benefit of the doubt, they were both trying their best to fairly represent their views. So. Yeah, and again, it's only a 55-second video, so maybe the person in the video did ask what this guy meant by sentience. We just don't know, because we only got a very short snippet of that conversation. But I agree with you, Jay, that we should ascribe the best version of the argument that we can, and then respond to it on those merits. Now, I could pick out that he was making two arguments. His first argument is that sentience is necessary for value as a human being, and his second argument is that communication is necessary to know if something is sentient or not, because if something can't communicate to you that it's sentient, then you can't know whether or not it is sentient. So let's go ahead and address this first argument, that sentience is necessary for value. When someone makes this argument that something must be sentient to have moral value, how would you address that, Jay? Well, first, at first I would ask for if somebody said sentient, to give me an example. I mean, what, what, what do you mean when you use the term sentience? Because what happens is that a lot of times people are downstream of what are, are some interesting arguments or interesting discussions, but they pick up bits and pieces of it, and then they go out and then in a lay conversation, it can actually get you a lot of mileage because you can. As people are, are hesitant to say, I don't know what you mean by that because they want to seem like they understand every vocabulary word used by everybody. 
uh, as soon as it comes out of their mouth. The best way to go about arguing, though, is to fight that impulse, act like you know exactly what everybody's talking about, and immediately mm-hmm. demand some level of definition. Uh, for, for example, when I asked that young man just last week when he brought up a very similar argument to what this young man said in this video, he said, do you know what sentience is, and do you know when it begins? And his answer to both of those was actually no. So he was at the same time arguing that sentience was what made a human being valuable, and he had no clear idea of what he meant by that term and no idea of when it actually attained within a human being. And so if they mean by that uh, the ability to feel pain, well, even there we have to get into what do you mean? The, the, the immediate capacity to experience pain but without knowledge or understanding, which could happen very early in pregnancy. Right now we're having pain-capable bills that are arguing that happens about 20 weeks. Or do they mean a capacity to understand pain or to grasp that? As I think C.S. Lewis talked about the idea, the difference between when one is suffering, one of the worst parts about suffering isn't just the immediate understanding of suffering, but also the, the desire to no longer be suffering, the memory that there was a time when you weren't suffering, and the hope that the suffering will end and you can go back to that time. And those psychological right. components play into some ability to sense pain and to feel pain. So, so I think you see now why it's so these, these benchmarks can be so difficult, but by their very nature, they're what we call degreed and episodic. Uh, and, right. and so nailing down that exact moment of whatever it is they're trying to ascribe as the thing that makes us valuable or, or where they're going to ground the wrongness and killing, however you want to talk about it, is a really hard thing to do with something as tricky as feeling pain. Right. And, I actually blame science fiction for people's confusion about what sentience actually means, because a lot of times science fiction shows and movies will investigate what it means to be human, what it means to have value as an individual, and often they use sentience to mean something like consciousness and self-awareness. And I think a lot of people have picked up on it based on how these science fiction franchises use the term. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is where either of you guys are leading also, but obviously after we try to nail down some sort of definition of sentience we also have to ask the question of why this is value giving in the first place or why this establishes some sort of of moral worth in a human being how how would you go about questioning that jay well there's two questions i think scott talks about them as well and greg kogel talks about them but two of the things that i like to when anytime you get into anything that's a developmental argument our sense of uh, this particular level of development is the thing that's going to give you value uh, one of the questions you just pointed to is who gets to decide first of all that sentience is the thing or conscious awareness is the thing or the ability to or, or organize cortical brain activities david boonin argues or, or any whatever Whatever criteria you're going to place, the first question we have to ask is, who gets to decide, or if I'm talking to an individual in front of me, why do you get to decide that that is the thing? And then the next question is, and this I think is, is the best question, is why should I believe you? Why, what mm-hmm. evidence do you have that that is the thing, the criteria that establishes the wrongness or killing or establishes a right to life or, or, or by which I am now duty-bound or obligated to restrain myself from killing you? Why should I believe that that is the thing? And, and why I think that becomes a problematic answer on their part is because, as I mentioned a moment, degreed properties, episodic properties, things that we have in different amounts at different times, even after we cross this threshold 
where you have them now. You didn't have them before, but you have them now. Well, you don't have them fully at any given moment, and you have them at less values at other times. And, and they're epi- they can be episodic, meaning you cannot have them at all at certain points. And those absences or those degrees, those fluctuations become very problematic in explaining, or even the degree to which they establish themselves, how we can then establish a hard line that we're drawing through humanity and saying everybody on this side of that line is a valuable human person uh, in which in that category to kill them or to physically harm them to the point of death, to murder them, however you want to term it would be the greatest wrong I can do to another human being. And if you're exactly on this other side of the line, just wherever I've decided to draw the line at whatever capacity I've given the, the importance to, I can do whatever I want to that person with no moral obligation or duty to them whatsoever. So it's an astonishingly high philosophical marker that has to be accounted for with, with, with obviously life hanging in the balance implications for the nature of the claim. And yet what we're being offered in more cases than not are things that we can't exactly tell when they come into existence, things that it's not exactly clear why that would be the thing that gives you value, except you may yeah. want to kill somebody, the desire to kill somebody at a different stage of the development with no reason to believe that the person in front of me is actually qualified to be able to make that decision. So those are some major problems that you encounter right. in that particular, and I try to point those out. Now we can go ahead and move on to a second argument, which is that communication is necessary to know if something is sentient. And this is where he was pointing to a tree that was next to him and saying, well, is this tree sentient? I don't know because I can't communicate with it. So Jay, how would you respond to somebody who claims that you can't know if something is sentient unless you can communicate with it? Wait, yeah, and there again, this guy has no clear definition of what he means by communication. I mean, if he means verbal expression, then we're going to have all sorts of problems that are going to arise from that. Cause that's a very ex- explicit type of communication. But we, as we know that from the time that that child implants into the mother's womb, it starts sending hormonal signals, communications to the mother's body that it's there so that the mother and the child can now operate in cooperation during the development of that mm. child inside the mother. And so that is a level of communication. We also know that uh, as they grow within the parents, they will communicate in other ways. For example, mm. my daughter, uh, when she was in her mid-20s into the 30th week area, when my wife sat in a position my daughter did not particularly like, my daughter would start wailing on the inside of my wife's rib cages. Uh, that grew as my daughter grew inside of there, and the space became more restricted, and positions became apparently more uncomfortable for her. Her, her mode of expressing her, her displeasure to my wife was constant. Now, what was fascinating was this was entirely different than my son, who would, my wife assures me, tell her that he was not happy, but if she waited him out, he would give up. Uh, now, I think that those, both of those are very consistent, by the way, with their personalities that we see in them now at 15 and 13 years old. That represents a level of communication. When my son was inside my wife, I could push in on – when he was she who was much older, I could push in on certain parts of her uh, stomach, and he would push back against me. He would find somehow whatever's going on inside of there – he would push back. Now, I'm not thinking my son's ready to read Tolstoy or Dostoevsky inside his mom, but that is some rudimentary <laughs> right. form of communication that's going on. And that first mm. example, example we're talking about at 12 days maybe after conception. Uh, later on, we're talking about in the 25, 35-week marker. So what is he – he has to give an example of what he means by communication. And then again, we mm. have to ask the question, 
who are you to determine the level of communication that divides us between persons that have value that we must respect and mere humans to which we can kill, use, exploit as a resource, anything we want to do, and why should I believe you? And why should I believe you is an important question to ask these people. Why should I believe you that that is the thing? What gives you the ability to make this decision at a level that I should now trust it as a, pod, you know, whatever, as a matter of preference or their own personal definitions? Yeah, and especially since this is literally a case of life or death, we really need to make sure we have our definitions here because we really need to make sure that we're not incorrect about our ways of valuing human life. And he's talking about it using this as justification for infanticide. I can tell you, when my son was born, a newborn in the hospital, there were a couple of procedures that I remember they did to him, and he communicated perfectly well that he was unhappy with those. Now, he didn't say, I'm deeply dissatisfied with what you're doing to me right now, but his screaming and wailing and attempts to punch anybody that got within six feet of him you know, was, was a clear indication <laughs> right. that he wasn't happy. And so I, the level of communication that this guy is, is, is placing on the ability to, that you must have to be able to now be trusted as a valuable member of the human family just seems exceedingly high. And the idea that they can't communicate to us is obviously false because they're communicating in certain ways all throughout pregnancy and then or very early in their life. It's just not ex- explicitly using human written or spoken language which is a very high marker for right. a newborn to be able to meet, to be able to prove that he's worth not killing. Right. And the thing is, this guy in the video is even more extreme than someone like Singer or Thule, because he seemed to believe that up until two years old, it would be permissible to kill you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and obviously he doesn't understand two-year-olds either, because he's like, can the two-year-old talk to me? Actually, yes, they can. <laughs> they, yeah. they talk to me. <laughs> Right. You, you may be confused because you watch The Incredibles and they say that Jack-Jack is two, but Jack-Jack is actually acting like an eight-month-old in that movie. In reality, oh, yeah. two-year-olds no. walk and they talk and they do all sorts of things. Uh, so, yes, right. they, they, they can. Uh, and so the, he, he is, I think what's going on here is there is a young man who is philosophically biting the bullet of a worldview that he's, he's embraced. Uh, and you see this a lot, I feel like, on college campuses when I talk to young people. They're willing to bite the bullet on the worldview that they're defending, and they believe that that willingness in and of itself has some virtue that attends to it. That they are in some way being virtuous by being willing to accept all the horrible implications that come with their worldview. Uh, because I, I think he, he's very cavalier. You know, When he comes up, he just sort of nods and says, yes, I accept that. I accept it's okay to kill two-year-olds. No, I, I don't believe he does. I don't believe for a second he actually right. believes that. But that's the kind of thing people say when they feel like, all right, in order to fight this fight, I'm going to bite all these bullets and, and just jump right in and take them all on. And that's where you mm-hmm. lead to this, this difficult ability to explain it. Why is it okay to kill a two-year-old? Why is it okay to kill the unborn? I'll take them all on mm-hmm. and kill them all. Uh, it's, a weird, it's a weird way to argue, but you, you do see this a lot. The other thing I think about this, too, is that it's really difficult to call his bluff on that. It's safe to bite those bullets because no one's actually going to bring him a two-year-old child and say, okay, you think it's permissible to kill this child? Go ahead and kill him. No one is going to put him to the test on this. So it's safe for him to keep biting those bullets because no one in their right mind is going to allow him to kill a two-year-old just to see if he's consistent within his worldview. Yeah, and, and that's why how we navigate conversations becomes such a big deal. Why our ability to ask pointed questions 
Uh, I think one of the lost arts of the conversation is the willingness to narrate conversations for people while you're having them. I think with this young man, it would, it would be an important step, if, and maybe they did right after this video stopped, to take a moment and say, can we go over what has been said so far in this conversation? Because I don't want to attribute to you any views that you don't hold. I don't want to argue with something that you're not actually saying, but I also want us to get out on the table all of the claims we've made at this point and to walk him through these claims that he's going through. I've seen that work to great effect when somebody does this sort of thing where they bite these philosophical bullets. And then when you say back to them the things that they're saying, they recognize that there's either a harshness or cruelty to them uh, that they don't really and can't really embrace when it comes when it's said back to them, and not said back in an ugly or mean way, but in a way that's clarifying. What is the nature of the conversation that we're having right now, and how have we got right. to that point, and what are the claims that you've made? That's why narrating a conversation becomes very helpful. I mean, you may have somebody that's just intransigent or somebody that's uh, uh, trolling you. I mean, they're just really looking to bug you anyway. But most of the time, if you have a reasonable person in front of you, when they hear the crazy things that they believe said back to them clearly and without prejudice, they, they see for themselves problems in what they're saying. Like, yeah, that doesn't sound right when you say that to me like that. So it was interesting in his sort of appeal to the tree, he, he says something to the effect of, you know, well, is the tree sentient or can the tree communicate? And I, I think in the video you can see the questioner, you want to ask him, or at least point out the to distinguish the, the difference between obviously the nature of the tree and the nature of a human being just in the in the capacities uh, between the two that a, a tree obviously is not sentient or can communicate in the same way as a human being even if we recognize that in a human being a human being from the time they come into existence have at least the basic root capacities for uh, sentience and communication, even if those capacities are not yet uh, immediately exercisable. Yeah, and I think what he's, he, I think he's doing, there's some merit in it if he did it more artfully. I think what he's trying to do is the, the same type of thing we do when we use Greg Kokel's tactics. And the, you know, the first question is, uh, how, you know, what do you mean by that? The second question would be, how did you come to believe that such a thing? And the third question would be, have you considered the implications for your view? I think in some way or another, what he's trying to do here is have you considered the implications of your view as a conversational piece? Because what he's saying is, if you think that we shouldn't kill the unborn because they're alive, this tree here is alive, and would you have a problem with killing the tree? Uh, I, I think that if we give him the best possible argument that he's trying to make there, he's making the case that there are lots of things around us that, are, that we will – uh, accept as living without controversy, that will uncontroversially embrace the idea that this is a life in front of me. But the, the, the nature of being a life doesn't require me in any way to respect it. Uh, there are trees that I feel free to cut down all the time. In my yard, at, at a low level, they grow, and I have to get them out, dig them up, cut them down, whatever. And if he's making that kind of a comparison, then I get where he's coming from. He's trying to make that. Now, I will say this in response to that. This is something that I see a lot of pro-life people arguing where they need to be more artful, not this particular person, but in all cases where I see people online. When we say that the science of embryology demonstrates the humanity of the unborn, we're, we are limiting that to the identity of the beginning of a human organism, and we're separating very clearly from that the philosophical question of value. And so here he's making a similar distinction. 
He's saying that the presence of life itself does not obligate us. A philosophical distinction has to be made about what makes valuable human life. And he's making – now, he's obviously, I think, making silly comparisons at this point between two-year-olds and a tree. Again, as I said, he clearly has not been around a whole lot of two-year-olds. Uh, it's based mm-hmm. on the way he's talking about them. But let's go back right. to comparing a fetus to a tree. Can it communicate with me? Can it talk with me? We both admit that the tree is alive and the fetus is alive, but what would be the fundamental difference between the tree and the human being? So giving him the best form of that, then we understand it. But now we have to go to the philosophical position that I think Clinton argued. I heard you arguing in the the bumper part of the program as we were coming on in the lead-in. We were talking about the argument of the substance view of human value because trees aren't rational by nature. Whereas the human being, by its very nature, is rational, whether it has that immediate practical capacity for it or not. And so we make those philosophical distinctions for them. Yeah, we, we, we recognize that they're both life, but we recognize that we have different philosophical obligations and duties to human life, and that there is no clear distinction between the two-year-old or you, the gentleman standing in front of me, or the fetus or the embryo that would allow me to kill them then and then be forbidden from killing them now. And to help him to help anyone that we're talking to to divide those two up. Life, as far as an organism present and identified as a human organism, and philosophy, which will determine at what point we owe duty, responsibility, obligation, and have accountability for how we treat that organism, which is a value question, a philosophy question. I think we can all agree that the video shows how someone can go to great lengths to justify their own worldview, but it's also a way that we can see how we can have conversations with people. We can use it as sort of an intellectual exercise to ask ourselves, what kinds of questions can I ask this person to really get at the heart of what he believes and really help him see that his position is not one that we should hold to? It's not one that grounds human equality. But there are some philosophers who do make more sophisticated arguments, such as the ones I mentioned previously, Peter Singer and Michael Tooley. So I have a couple of arguments here that they make so that we can address them and be a little more exhaustive regarding the arguments for infanticide. Now, the arguments for the permissibility of abortion are pretty numerous. Depending on who you go to, they might ground the permissibility of abortion in sentience. Someone like Wayne Sumner, who does understand the correct usage of the term sentience, would say that what matters morally is not what you are or what you can do, it's whether or not you can suffer. So he places moral value in sentience. Or you might get someone like Thule, who places moral value in your self-awareness, because in order to be harmed by being deprived of your life, you have to see yourself as existing through time and value the thing that you will be deprived of in the future. Or you might find someone like David Boonin, who argues that until you have cortical brain activity going on, you're not a person because in order to be harmed by being deprived of something, you have to desire it, and you can't desire anything until cortical activity happens in the brain. So there are many different ways that someone might ground their support for abortion. But then the argument for infanticide is just that whichever property you place human value in, the infant who has just been born is not relevantly different from the late-term fetus. So if the property you ground human value in justifies late-term abortion, it justifies infanticide as well, because there's no significant difference between the late-term fetus and the infant. How then would you respond to someone who argues for infanticide on those grounds, Jay? Well, first of all, it, I, it, you did an excellent job at covering everything. Let's 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 help the audience though. On one thing, David Boonin and his organized cortical brain activity, his argument has that happening somewhere about 25, 30 weeks during pregnancy. 
And so he would right. not say it's okay to kill newborns. He would be he would be separated from that. He would say that, and and his is rooted in the idea of desires. Um, I, there, I think we get into a great discussion that's perfectly helpful for us as well, as, as far as talking about infanticide, because. For example, Peter Singer's arguments amount to something similar to the idea that it is not – if it's okay to kill you while you're inside the mother, then it's okay to kill you immediately after you're born because the type of thing that you are has not changed at all. All that has changed is where you are, and where you are does not give you value. An eight-inch trip by the, down the birth canal is not a magical trip that transforms the nature of your life. If you were the kind of thing that it was okay to kill prior to birth, you, re- you maintain that identity as the kind of thing that it's okay to kill immediately after birth. And I do think that that's helpful for us in our discussion with people uh, because we agree with that point. We, we absolutely are in 100% agreement with him at, at the limited point that where you are is not a value-giving property. Uh, and so if you're the kind of thing that you shouldn't kill after you're born – then you're the kind of thing that you shouldn't kill immediately before you're born because all this changed is where you are, and that hasn't in any way magically transformed the nature of your life. So what Peter Singer, Michael Tooley, and these defenders of this view are doing is that they are being intellectually honest across the board. Now, they have different reasons for that honesty. For example, that Peter Singer, who we mentioned several times, is an animal rights activist. And so what he's trying to ground value in is something that is shared across species and not necessarily something that is shared – within a particular continuum of existence within a particular species. So he doesn't really care that it, it would leave the newborn up for being considered intrinsically not valuable, that there would be nothing objectively wrong with killing the newborn for two reasons. Number one, because by, by grounding it in conscious, uh, conscious awareness that he grounds it in, uh, that, that what he does is opens up the idea that now pigs and dogs and monkeys and all of these other animals have to be treated with duty and respect and we have accountability for killing them. And it opens up beyond the inclusive view of human value that Christopher Kayser argues, a broad inclusive view of animal rights that would require us to treat them differently. And, and the way he goes back and protects the infants, so to speak, or the newborns, is that he says that clearly if someone carried a child to birth and that child has someone in his life that wants that child. And so the interests of that person, the wish, willingness, or desire for that child to continue to live, the the wrongness of killing it would be entirely grounded in the interests of the person who wishes them to continue to exist. And so in that way, he doesn't open up the door for this idea that you can just run around killing all newborns. He he, He carves out a special particular category of newborns whose life could be taken without it being objectively wrong. And those would be the severely disabled, anyone who is going to frustrate the interests of fully conscious beings, uh, anybody who would be entirely cut off from all of their community that there's no one to care about them. Those people would fall into that category of there being zero wrong in killing. Uh, And so, but again, the, the problem I think that Christopher George and I mean Robert George and Christopher Tollefson talk about their book Embryo. Anytime you start to appeal to utilitarian arguments in order to ground human value, utilitarian arguments have a failure. They're going to be incapable of saying that there is anything, any action that we can do that is absolutely wrong in and of itself. That all of those actions will have to be weighed or measured by goods or desires or interests or however you want to ground them in your two utilitarian framework. A happiness, pleasure, those principles. 
And if you can mm-hmm. produce sufficient good, sufficient pleasure, su- uh, appeal to sufficient interest, you can justify all sorts of things that most people would, would objectively say are wrong things. It has no power to say that action is wrong in and of itself. What it has to do is it has to be able to, to demonstrate that the action in and of itself has a low utility action, so to speak, or bad consequences associated to it. And a high enough yeah. utility, good consequences, then you can justify anything. If Scott, I remember watching Scott in front of Emory Law School students talking to law professors that were discussing, discussing utilitarian uh, aspects of grounding value, and Scott said – is it true? Don't you acknowledge that it's true that under utilitarian system, with 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 adequate, uh, like if I had a a stadium filled with pedophiles and a child with no one that cared about her and loved them or, or had any association with them, an orphan, that we could make an argument that the joy or pleasure that could be produced by that stadium full of people would override the interest of that child, and there'd be no competing mm-hmm. interest to keep that child alive, and that ultimately under your that kind of framework would be a good within it. And the, the professor said, well, yes, we have to embrace that view. Well, obviously, then, there's something wrong with that view. I mean, that, right. that, that demonstrates a shortfall in that view. And so that's where you, you have to help. When you get into these more sophisticated arguments, you really have to be able to take a step back and to help them to see the, the bigger picture. Uh, what does it open us up to? Uh, a clear grounding of animal rights. What is the cost of that clear grounding of animal rights? We put the youngest human beings at risk for being treated as – uh, the paper, as we've seen, after considering after-birth abortions, wanted to change the entire mm-hmm. medical practice to consider the idea that killing them immediately after birth is no different than killing them before birth. And so what do we do with severely yeah. disabled kids or kids that we don't want? We take them back to the hospital and have them painlessly and mercifully killed. Unfortunately, we seem to be living in a culture now where one man's reductio ad absurdum is another man's being consistent within his worldview. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's interesting that the advocates for infanticide are kind of just taking the, the sled argument in reverse, right? I mean, they're they're essentially making the same argument. They're just taking the logic the other way. Whereas when we, you know, speak with pro-choice advocates, we give the sled argument and then we want to make the case that, well, if we can't kill the newborn and there are only these four differences between the newborn and the unborn, then just as we protect the newborn, we should protect the unborn as well. And the advocate for infanticide just says, well, no, it just means that we can kill the infant as well. Uh, after all, there is no real difference between the unborn and the newborn. Yep, absolutely. And one of the things that's great about this, by the way, rhetorically in front of a group of people, if you're having this kind of conversation, number one, and one of the things I warn all people about, just because somebody won't accept your argument doesn't mean your argument's not good. There are some people that are just going to dig their heels in. And they're going to they're going to right. take this view, even though even though it's a view that doesn't do a great job of explaining the human experience. And that's that's what all of these arguments are doing in a very basic way. We're trying to look at how we experience the world around us and come up with the best explanation for the, the things that we experience, the intuitions that we have, that sense of right and wrong, the obligations and duties that we feel to other human beings, the strong sense of a need for justice that is felt by, by anybody that's ever gone to see a movie with a really good villain in it, right? I mean, you go to see a movie, <laughs> and there's a need to see that guy get his comeuppance at the end. We're all very happy when Hans Gruber drops at the end of Die Hard down to the ground. <laughs> you know, there's an eruption, a screaming, and a cheering because – 
because he's a bad guy and justice demands that he pay for it. So we have we experience these strong senses of justice, of right and wrong, of obligation and duty, uh, of objective moral values. And so we're using these arguments to try to explain that sense of what we're experiencing. Uh, and, and anytime you're having this kind of discussion with somebody, it's helpful, even if they decide they're just going to be the foil. All they're going to do is dig in and take the opposite position from you because that's the role they want to play today. That's still helpful because you have people watching and you have people listening, and they can become an example of a worldview that's inconsistent or doesn't hold, or they'll look silly after a while, embracing it. I've seen this happen a lot in dialogues on college campuses where somebody just decides, I'm biting every bullet possible and I'm holding on to this view. And the other people around you that would, under normal circumstances, agree with just their view on abortion, as these people are making these ghastly arguments about killing newborns, they start to say, I don't agree with him. I don't agree with that guy. (laughs) He doesn't represent me. Let's be very clear. He's not on my side. Uh, And you start to hear these objections. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't agree with that. That's wrong. Uh, And and it's very helpful then to allow that conversation to unfold, to remain gracious, to remain clear, to narrate the conversation. Because Peter Singer, ultimately, you know, there's evidence that he finds some aspects of his arguments unlivable as well and how he treats the people in his life and specifically the people closest to him, specifically his mother when she was dying. And so there's a, there's a level of unlivability about it, which is why I said I don't believe this guy thinks it's okay to kill two-year-olds. So, I mean, Paul Copan, philosopher, Christian philosopher, had a great line once I, when I heard him say this. He was talking – somebody brought up the whole idea of killing newborns, and, and we're discussing how to philosophically to, to take that on. And he said, let me be very clear. If you're talking to somebody who honestly doesn't believe that there's anything wrong with killing a newborn human being, they don't need an argument. They need a psychiatrist. Because everybody knows that it's wrong to brutally kill another, a newborn human being. And if they don't, then something's gone wrong with them. And so I think yeah, that right. that's helpful. I think, I, think, I think Paul nailed something very important there, the idea that we have to separate the arguments that we're willing to make to support worldviews from the actual human interaction that we would ever allow ourselves to be involved in. And it's helpful to use that, that harshness that they come at you with sometimes to help other people see the links to which people will go to to support these other arguments. That's a point that uh, Paul Copham brings up in his book, uh, True for You But Not for Me, when he addresses a lot of the, the issues of moral relativism and and says that, you know, in cases such as this, these people, want number one, are just not being intellectually honest, or number two, they're a moral monster. Um, and so I think that's a very important point that, uh, that Jay brings up. Now, Jay mentioned after-birth abortion a little bit earlier, and that was actually the last argument for infanticide I have here, from Alberto Gibellini and Francesca Minerva's paper, After-Birth Abortion, Why Should the Baby Live? Now, Jubilini and Minerva take a personate approach that late-term fetuses and infants are not persons because, and I'm quoting from their article here, they say, quote, We take person to mean an individual who is capable of attributing to her own existence some at least basic value, such that being deprived of this existence represents a loss to her, end quote. And so they take an anti-personate approach to late-term fetuses and infants, but then they say that we should actually allow infanticide, and one of their defenses of infanticide is that some of the reasons that justify late-term abortion, such as severe deformity of the fetus, don't become known until birth. 
Some abnormalities cannot be screened for, and sometimes they're even missed during prenatal screening. So sometimes infanticide is necessary. Yeah, it's, it's a strange argument they make too, right? I mean, where they, where they talk about how uh, you could wrong a future person, but you can't wrong these, these lives immediately, right? I mean, I mm, could, I right. could yeah. cause harm to somebody who doesn't exist, but as a, as a hypothetical person in the future by allowing them to continue to develop with this and, 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 and so doing harm a group of people that don't yet exist. And yet I'm not capable of harming the life right in front of me because I have defined it out of existence as valuable persons, which again goes back to our first question. They give a definition for person that is designed or intended to exclude the people that they wish to kill, right? The human beings that they right. wish to kill. But the question is, why should I accept your definition? You can't just give the definition and then move to killing them. You have to explain why your definition is a, is a better definition of what it means to be a, a valuable human life than alternative definitions. But th what they do is they right. say, we, you know, persons are this. This is how we define persons. If we allow these, you know, these extremely dis severely disabled people to continue to develop, then they would ultimately feel the pain of being harmed when they become the kind of thing that it would be wrong to kill. And so let's kill them before mm. they get there. There's so many weird things all in one area. I mean, it really is. There's so many strange things going on in a, a short order of argument there. Uh, what I love, though, if you saw the the Journal of Medical Ethics that followed the publication of that one article was entirely devoted to that. And Robert George had the, the shortest response to their original article because all these other – it's somewhere about half, half and half. You had half people saying they're reasonable, we should consider it. But half the philosophers said this is outrageous and that we shouldn't be thinking about this. But Robert George had the, the Catholic philosopher had the shortest response. His response was this, that's madness. And I thought that was such a – that was a – a beautiful response because George doesn't worry about being out. I mean, he is an academic of the highest order, respected Princeton University, uh, does you know dialogues with Cornell West all over the country about, and, and served on the President's Council for Bioethics, uh, served on Obama some, some, uh, for President Obama, councils for President Obama on the treatment of refugees and, and other people like that. We're talking about somebody who has nothing but the highest respect in the academic circles, and his response to this article, this idea of afterbirth abortions, is. Perfect moral clarity. This is madness. This is madness, and you have taken it out of the realm of, of an academic discussion and a class at a university where this guy is going to take it and come out and argue with somebody on the quad like that, and you've moved it into the realm of the Journal of Medical Ethics where you're intentionally advising doctors that within the course of their proper following or pursuit of the medical practice, they should add to their duties the decision to kill newborn human beings. It's madness. You've crossed the right. line, and it's madness. You need to pull it back. And, and I think there comes a point where we have to do both. We have to engage intellectually with the argument, but to recognize you're crossing dangerous lines. You keep expanding the types of human beings that we're allowed to kill. You keep trying to define other human beings out of existence. You make arguments that we would harm people that don't exist, and so to prevent ourselves from doing that, we should be free to kill human lives that do exist today. This is madness. Pull back everyone before it gets too far out of line. Okay, well, we're coming to the end of our time together here. Just to briefly recap where we've been today, we looked over a recent viral video from Students for Life with a college student arguing for infanticide. And we kind of looked at some of his justifications, how the conversation could have went. And then we looked at a couple more academic arguments for 
infanticide, the argument that in order to be a per, be considered a person, you have to be able to value your own life. And so in, in the way that's relevant regarding moral value, there's no significant difference between a late-term fetus and an infant. So if it's permissible to kill one, it's permissible to kill the other. And then we looked at another argument, uh, which states that that some that some of the justifications for late-term abortion also justify infanticide, such as the justification that uh, that an abortion may be necessary in the in the case of a severe fetal deformity, which may have been missed during prenatal screening. So, Jay, uh, thank you so much for coming on and joining us here. You've offered a lot of food for thought, and uh, your insights have been incredibly helpful. No, I appreciate it, guys. I had a lot of fun. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thanks, Jay. And Aaron, thank you for joining me this morning to discuss the topic of infanticide with Jay. Oh, thank you. I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah, suggest to you guys a future topic for your show. One that oh, I would sure. be, I would be happy to join in. Uh, there's an episode of Future a Futurama called "The Problem with Poplars." We should talk about that sometime. <laughs> um, okay. That, yeah, I'm very. I'm very you should you should immediately go watch "The Problem with Poplars," and then we should have a pro-life conversation about the episode of Futurama, "The Problem with Poplars," because that would be a fascinating discussion. All right. Yeah, we'll plan on doing that sometime here in the in the possible near future. You got it. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, if you've enjoyed this conversation, I would just ask that you share this around social media, wherever you happen to frequent. Uh, you can rate and review us on our Facebook page as well as on iTunes. You can find us there as well. Now, uh, this is a weekly podcast, <laughs> uh, give or take, uh, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And if you want to donate to this podcast specifically, you can indicate that in the notes section as well. Donations are also tax deductible. Now next week, uh, Aaron and I will be back to discuss uh, some more uh, related to person, and we're going to talk a little bit about gradualist arguments, arguments that that argue that it's that abortion is permissible in the early term, but then gets more difficult to justify later on as as we develop as human beings. So once again, I'd like to thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.